Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Those of you remaining with us this morning may open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Um, Hopefully most of you know where that is by now, but maybe you're here for the first time. Uh, If you don't know where Malachi is, if you go to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and just turn back a few pages to the left, you'll get to Malachi. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be a white paperback Bible under one of the chairs right in front of you. And so you can grab uh, that Bible and uh, open it to page 467, 467 in the white paperback Bibles. Just a couple of things to mention before we get started here. First of all, uh, John uh, prayed for the 50th anniversary of Westminster, which is being celebrated this weekend. And um, um, we're very grateful for the presence of Westminster Presbyterian because they're the church that planted this church 22, 23 years ago uh, or so. And so we're rejoicing with Westminster this weekend as they celebrate God's faithfulness to them over the course of 50 years. And... um, There is one more event in this celebration weekend, and that's tonight. There's a service at Westminster at 6 p.m., excuse me, at which Pastor Brian will be preaching. And so I want to encourage you all to to go to that service tonight. Uh, I think Westminster would be very encouraged by seeing um, a strong contingent of New Life people show up to celebrate with them. And um, it'd be a blessing to hear Pastor Brian this evening as well. So 6 o'clock at Westminster Presbyterian there at Tillotson and Riverside. Um, The other thing to mention is that uh, on your chairs somewhere nearby you'll find a card that looks like this, How to Make Sense of Life. And this is a new sermon series that's coming up starting on May 7th. Uh, Next Sunday, actually, Andrew Brown is going to be preaching. He is our new youth director here, and so he'll be bringing the word next Sunday. And then the week after that, we're going to start this new sermon series, How to Make Sense of Life. And this is going to be a really, um, at least the intent is for this sermon series, to help non-Christians in particular kind of make sense of life. Uh, It's going to seek to address from the scriptures the common questions that people ask, like, is there meaning to life? And can I know what's right and wrong in life? And can I know who I am? What is my identity in life? So... I want you to invite people to come to church through that sermon series. And I would encourage you specifically to just think of one person, one person who maybe you have been talking to about the gospel a little bit, wondering where to go next. One person, pick up one of these cards, just hand it to them and say, you're invited to come starting on May 7th. All the information they need is here. So um, there are extra copies at the Welcome Center. So if you want to invite more than one person, that's great too. Take as many as you like. But um, that's my challenge to you, uh, to invite someone to that series. Okay, we are um, finishing today our sermon series on the book of Malachi. And so we're picking up here, chapter 3, verse 13. And I'm going to be reading to the end of the chapter. But first of all, I want to ask if you guys remember... Y2K. Isn't it unbelievable that it's been 17 years since Y2K? I mean, I remember it seemed like there were so many years until Y2K would get here. 
And now that's 17 years in our past. Some of you weren't uh, even born during Y2K. Um, but Y2K was um, an event where the calendar turned over from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000. And it created a problem, or a lot of people were anticipating problems, with our computer system. Because in a lot of computers, the, um, the date was entered just with the last two digits, not all four digits. So when the calendar turned over from 1999 to 2000, the fear was that the computer wouldn't be able to recognize the difference between 2000 and 1900. And everybody wondered, what is this going to do to our computers? And a lot of people looking forward to this day were just thinking, this is going to be such an enormous day because this is going to be like an apocalyptic event. You know, the computer systems are all going to shut down. There's going to be major power outages throughout the nation and maybe the world, probably food shortages. And so people were buying food and storing them in cellars and getting ready for the big day, Y2K. Well, the day came, didn't it? The calendar turned over from 1999 to 2000 and basically nothing happened. I mean, it was, it was almost a total bust and it seemed that people's fears were largely unfounded. Well, there is another big day that is coming. It is certain to happen. It's going to affect everybody on the globe and everybody who has ever lived, and it is not going to be a bust. And this day, according to the Bible, is called the Day of the Lord, and it's going to be a very big day. In fact, it's going to be the biggest day in your life. You know, all of us have certain big days in our lives, right? We, uh, you know, for those of us who are married, um, our, our wedding day is a big day. Uh, students are getting ready for final exams, so you're getting ready for some big days coming up in a couple of, of weeks. And uh, for those of us in ministry, we face a very big day when we go through ordination. I still remember very clearly my ordination day, looking forward to that big day and getting ready for it. And uh, In fact, our church planner, Josh Hollowell, planning City Hope Fellowship in downtown Muncie, is in that process right now, and his big day is coming up early May, so he's getting very close to uh, his ordination exams, and uh, I can assure you that Josh is doing everything in his power to prepare as best as he can uh, for his big day, and that's the case for any big day, right? We, we get ready for it. We prepare for it, and when it comes to the day of the Lord that we're going to learn about here in Malachi, the question that it begs for all of us is this, are, are you ready for that? Are you ready for the day of the Lord. So we're going to look at this passage and pay special attention to the repetition here referring to this, this big day, chapter 3, starting with verse 13. So if you have your Bibles open, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read again through the end of the book, starting at chapter 3, verse 13. <clears throat> These are the words of God here, starting in verse 13. Your words... I mean, all the Bible is the words of God, but this is God quoted specifically. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Lord, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. Do that as your word goes forth now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you might remember that Malachi has been organized in the form of what are called six disputations. Do you remember that? Six disputations, six kind of dialogues or kind of Q&A sessions that go on between God and his people. And so we've been seeing this through the last five sermons, and now we've reached the sixth and final um, disputation or kind of Q&A exchange between God and his people. And so um, what's been happening here is the people have been bringing accusations against God, and God has been answering them. And so in verses 13 to 15, we see this exchange take place. And so what God says in verse 13 to his people is that your words have been hard against me. You've been speaking words that have been hard for God to, to receive and accept. And the people respond to this by asking, how? How have we spoken against you? And so this is a repeated theme. We see that the people of Israel don't seem to know how they are disobeying and offending God. They don't have a clue. They think they're fine. And so, friends, I just want to say, you know, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for you all to be under the preaching and teaching of the Word on a regular basis, because this is a temptation for all of us to just kind of get into our blind spots, to kind of drift away, and to not know exactly how it is that we have been walking astray from God. You come under the Word, and God kind of reorients you and straightens you out, and that's what needs to take place here. These people, they don't even realize how it is they've spoken against God. So God answers their question, and he says, here is how you've spoken against me. You've said, verse 14, that it is vain to serve me. And so this is the question we're going to be kind of seeking to, to answer here. How or is it futile, is it vain to serve God? 
This is what the people have been saying. It seems like a waste of time to serve you, God. Now you can see that's a pretty hard statement to make. And that's why God says in verse 13, this is a hard saying. But honestly, we can kind of understand what the people are saying. Because in verses 14 and 15, here's their logic. What they're saying is this. They're saying, you know, we, we've been keeping your charge, God. And we've been walking as in mourning. We've been worshiping you and, you know, putting on our long faces. And uh, we, we've been engaged as emotionally as we can. But, but nothing seems to happen. What is the profit of this? We don't seem to get anything in return. And then in verse... Uh, 15, he sa they say that in contrast to the righteous, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to test and they escape. So basically what they're saying is good people do good things and they don't get rewarded. Bad people do bad things and they don't get punished. So what's the use? Why serve God if that's the way it's going to be? It seems fruitless. It seems vain. And God's answer to this is, is, is this. He says, here's the mistake you're making, people. And, and he would say this to us, too, because I'm sure all of us have asked that question sometime. We look in the world, and it seems like good people don't get rewarded, and bad people do get rewarded. What's going on? And what God would say is the mistake really there is that we're expecting, to God, we're expecting God to intervene and to act immediately according to our timetable and according to our expectations. And what God says is, no, that's not necessarily the way it is. He tells these people, he says, that there is going to come a time when I'm going to act. There is going to come a time when I'm going to make a distinction between the two. There is going to come a time when I'm going to act decisively in response to the way people have been living. And that time is going to come on what's called the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, this is all going to get straightened out. And so as God's people then, we, we walk in faith and we wait until that day. But the rest of this passage explains to us what this day of the Lord is going to be like. So there's three things that we see here. And the first is this. The day of the Lord has been clearly announced. It's been proclaimed clearly. So we see this actually at the end of the passage in chapter 4, verse 5, where we're told that before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, something's going to happen first. I will send you Elijah the prophet, God says. I'm going to send you Elijah. And when we read this, it seems odd to our eyes and ears, doesn't it? He's he, he, going to send Elijah. Why would he say that when Elijah lived 400 years previously? Elijah was dead. So now Malachi, or God through Malachi, is saying Elijah's going to come again? Is that what he means? That Elijah's going to be resurrected and he's going to come back? And why does he choose Elijah in particular? Because there's Abraham and David. I mean, there's more kind of major figures in the Old Testament that God might send. But he chooses Elijah, a man who is dead. Why? And who is this? And what's the purpose of this? Well, thank God for the New Testament, because when we look at the New Testament, it makes sense of a lot of these mysterious things in the Old Testament. And so if we look at Matthew chapter 11, we read this. This is the words of Jesus. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. 
So what Malachi is saying here is that there is not a literal Elijah coming. No, Elijah's not going to be raised from the dead to come back again. It's a metaphorical Elijah. It's someone who comes in the pattern of Elijah. Someone who fits the, the model that Elijah uh, has set in his ministry. And when you think about it, there are some similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist. Elijah called for repentance, and that's what John the Baptist did. Elijah was kind of an outsider, you know, kind of did some odd, strange things, and John the Baptist was kind of the same way. Elijah was not part of the major power structure at the time, always in opposition to those in authority. John the Baptist, the same way. And so what Malachi is saying is, someone's going to come in the future, and he's going to be like Elijah, and in the New Testament, we find out this is John the Baptist. Really, it makes sense. What good would it have done for Elijah, excuse me, for Malachi to say, hey, John the Baptist is coming in 400 years? Nobody knows who John the Baptist is. That doesn't really help. So, Malachi, God through Malachi, uses language that the people understand. This person uh, called Elijah to set the stage for the coming of John the Baptist. Now, the reason I think this is all happening it is an act of God's goodness and kindness and grace. Because what God is saying here is, I, I am making the coming day of the Lord as clearly known as I possibly can. I, I'm trying to give you advance notice. The day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord, the big day that is coming before us is one that is going to be preceded by the coming of John the Baptist. And then after John the Baptist, the Messiah is going to come. And John the Baptist's purpose was to pave the way and get ready for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah comes as a fulfillment of this day of the Lord that's being talked about here in Malachi. So the announcement is tax day, right? I mean, April 15th was tax day. Nobody likes tax day. It is a big day for a lot of us. I mean, but one good thing we can say about tax day is at least we know it's coming. I mean, what if you just got these notices in the mail from time to time saying your taxes were, were late, but you had no idea that there was a deadline? I mean, that would make it a whole lot more frustrating process. Well, no one has an excuse to go to the government and say, sorry, I didn't know that April 15th was taxed. Everybody knows that. It's been clearly known. And here's what God is doing. He's saying, I'm going to send you these prophets that are talking about this coming day, and then I'm going to send you John the Baptist, and he's going to come, and he's going to start talking about Jesus. And then in addition to all this, when Jesus comes, he's going to come in two stages so the day of the Lord is fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, but the Messiah comes in two stages. So this is just even more grace and patience and mercy from God. Malachi didn't see this. Malachi didn't know that the Messiah would come in two stages. But again, we look at the New Testament and we see how this works. So the two stages. First of all, Jesus comes in grace. We see this in John 3. <clears throat> Most famous verse in the Bible, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this is in reference to Jesus' first coming. He didn't come in judgment, first of all. He came to save. 
But there's going to be a second coming of Jesus, right? And we live in between these two comings. He's coming again, but when he comes a second time, he's coming in judgment. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord, and there's our language here in the New Testament, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, everyone is going to be judged as they face Jesus upon his second coming. But do you see how God is making it clear? Prophets, Malachi over the years, John the Baptist, and then when the Messiah comes, he comes in grace, first of all, and he's going to come again, but 2,000 years has gone by, and the second coming hasn't happened. That's the patience of God. That's the mercy of God. The day of the Lord is coming, and God is telling you that. It's going to happen. Get ready. Are you ready? Or are you dismissing these things? Are you ignoring these things? The day of the Lord is coming. You're hearing it right now. You're all accountable. You can't say you didn't know. There's a movie called Take Shelter that came out a few years ago about this man, a father, who got all these apocalyptic images and dreams, and he just kept feeling like there was some kind of judgment day coming, and, and he built this shelter for his family, and he took his family down there to hide from this, this coming big day, but there's a scene in the movie where he's talking to somebody who, who thinks he's crazy, and he says, a storm is coming like nothing you've ever seen, and none of you is prepared for it. And that's what Malachi is saying to his people. That's what John the Baptist was saying. That's what Jesus was saying. That's what the apostles were saying. And that's what I'm saying. And that's what every preacher of the gospel for 2,000 years has been saying. So that it can be clearly known that the day is coming. So that you'll be ready. So you might say, well, ready for what? What's going to happen? Well, that's the next point. The next two points actually explain to us what's going to happen. The first is this. The day of the Lord will bring destruction for the wicked. That's one thing that's going to happen on this day. Now remember the charge in verse 15 from chapter 3. The people say evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They get away with it. And the people are cynical about that right that's been the theme throughout this book cynical disillusioned unbelieving people and they're disillusioned by this as well and god responds here and he says they're not going to get away with it because the day is going to come verse 18 when a distinction will be made between the righteous and the wicked the one who serves god and the one who doesn't that distinction one day will be made and this is what really can make it hard to live in a fallen world, right? Because we don't always see that distinction. Again, going back to the people's original question, you know, we see people in marriages. We see people are faithful sometimes in really difficult marriages, and maybe they don't always seem happy, but they're faithful, and then nothing seems to come of it for them. And then you see someone who, a man who just abandons his family, just commits adultery and leaves his family, and he goes off, and he just seems to have this delightful, wonderful, successful life. And we think, where's the distinction between good and bad there? Or we see the 
honest business owner who's working as hard as he can to make sure that his products are exactly what he says they're going to be and he doesn't overcharge and he's an honest businessman but he doesn't seem to be making it he's struggling he might have to close down his shop he looks down the street and there's the businessman who's a cheater who makes an inferior product and he's getting rich and he's thriving it's like where's the distinction between good and evil in that case you have some churches that are preaching a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, promising everybody that they'll never get sick and that they'll be rich if they just believe God, and the churches grow, and there's 40,000 people every Sunday. And then you have these churches, small, struggling, preaching the gospel, sticking to the word. Nobody knows about them. Where's the distinction between good and evil in that case? That's the question that these people were asking. And God is saying the distinction's going to come on the last day. On the day of the Lord, here's what's going to happen. Chapter 4, verse 1. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Stubble, it's just like dried up wheat. It's something that's very easily ignited and caught on fire. And so he goes on, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. A picture of the wicked being burned up in fire, like stubble would be, like a pile of dry weeds and you drop a match on it and it goes up in flames. That's, that's the picture that's been given to us, and it's repeated in the New Testament. This is Jesus in, um, in, uh, in Matthew 13. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They'll gather out His kingdom, the causes, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what's going to happen on the final day. The wicked are going to be judged, and it's going to be a painful, tormenting day for them. That's the image that's being given to us. But that's not just it. If you go on, look at verse 3. What else is going to happen? Speaking to the righteous, um, in verse 2, you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will come with healing in its wings. So this is going to be a blessing to the righteous. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But then he says in verse 3, you who are righteous, you're going to tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. When? On the day when I act. And you see these pictures. You've been hearing a lot about what's been going on with ISIS, for instance, and other nations, and ISIS beheading Christians and persecuting Christians and putting Christians to death. And our hearts grieve as we see that happening, and we act, where is the justice in that? Where's the distinction between good and evil? And what God is promising here is that the day is, is going to be coming when those ISIS fighters are going to be nothing but ashes under the soles of our feet. It's not a call for Christians to trample them or kill them or take up the gun or the sword against them. That's, that's not what this is. God is going to do the judging. 
But when that judgment takes place, the righteous are going to stand over the wicked and step on them and trample them down. That's the promise. The distinction will be made. People will see that there's a difference when the wrath of God is unleashed upon the wicked. Some of you have seen The Shack or read the book The Shack, the movie The Shack. I haven't read the book, but I saw the movie. And there's a scene where Mac is kind of the main character in, in the story, and um, he's talking with God, um, who's played by a woman. And so there's this exchange going on, and um, Mac talks to, to God and, and says, um, you know, what, what did I hear about you being a God of wrath? And God says, what, huh? And he says it again, yeah, I thought you were a, a God of wrath and anger. And she, she says, huh, what? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Like this is some foreign concept to God, being a God of wrath. And then the quote is, <clears throat> I don't need to punish people for sin, I just cure it. I don't need to punish people for sin, I, I just cure it. Now, like most errors, there's a mixture of truth and error. Sure, yes, God will cure sin, but he will also punish it. He will punish evildoers. Revelation tells us this. If you're thinking, well, this is just an Old Testament concept, here's the New Testament. This is, this is talking about Jesus when he comes on the day of the Lord. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and on, among the rocks of the mountains. Now watch this. Calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us. Have you ever called on a big rock to fall on your head? It would be better, they say. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? I'd rather have a big boulder fall on me and crush me than to face the wrath of the Lamb. That's what, what they're saying. This is the coming of Jesus on the great day of the Lord. When destruction will be brought for the wicked. But there's a second part of what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will bring vindication to the righteous. Vindication to the righteous. The big day for the righteous is going to be very, very different. We already saw this wonderful picture in verse 3, chapter 4, that the sun of righteousness will rise. I mean, isn't that a beautiful image, particularly in the springtime? You know, it's a beautiful sunny day. I think it's still sunny out it's just such a glorious thing, isn't it? When the sun breaks through the clouds, when the cold weather goes away and you can start wearing shorts and t-shirts, and when the grass starts growing and the flowers start growing and the sun beats down upon them and dries up the dew. and Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's just the best time of year, springtime. And that's the picture that we're getting here of what the day of the Lord is going to be like for the righteous. Two other things we see here. One, God says this. He's going to remember the good deeds of the righteous. So, looking at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So this is a distinct group from those who were complaining in verses 13 to 15. There's a different group, those who feared the Lord. They spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention, and He heard them. And we don't know exactly what they were saying, but apparently they were talking about their obedience to God or talking about the Lord in some way, talking about um, what He's done for them and how they should obey Him. And 
it says here that a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. This isn't the book of life. This is some kind of a memorial scroll where the good deeds of the righteous are being written down and, and recorded. So God is taking, taking notice of these things. And so to answer the question, is it futile to serve God? No, it's not futile to serve God. Because every bit of service that you offer to him is being noted. It's like God's taking notes. He's watching. He's remembering. He sees it when you share the gospel with somebody in private and maybe they reject it and never come to faith and nobody knew about it, but, but you did that. He notices the person working in the nursery Sunday after Sunday that, that people just kind of pass by and don't give any special attention to. He notices the single person who's remaining celibate decade after decade in obedience to God. He notices the person putting the money in the plate every single Sunday. Nobody sees that. Nobody notices, but God does. He's taking notes. He's watching, and these things are recorded in this book of remembrance. So it's not futile to serve God. But the second thing we see here, not only does God remember the good deeds of his people, but he will spare them from his wrath. Thank God. Verse 17, describing this big day, the day of the Lord. Here's what God will say to his people. Here's what God will say to the righteous. Now, you might be thinking, am I righteous or am I wicked? <laughs> what the Bible would say is if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're among the righteous. You might do wicked things, you've made lots of mistakes, you're a sinner, that's true, but the glory of the gospel is that when you trust in Jesus, his righteousness is given to you through faith. So you stand righteous before him. You can say, I am righteous. You might not be righteous practically in everything you do, but you are righteous positionally before God. That's the gospel. That righteousness is given through faith. If you're a Christian, this is about you. And here's what God says. He's going to say to you. He's going to say to you this. When you get to the final day, he's going to say, you're mine. You belong to me. You're my treasured possession. I treasure you. You're like a keepsake that I put in a very special place, and it's protected. You belong to me. That will never change. And in addition to that, I'm going to spare you, just like a son spares, just like a father spares his son, just like a father looks upon his son in grace and compassion. I'm going to spare you. Spare you from what? I'm going to spare you from my wrath. You're not going to have to face it. And as we look ahead into the New Testament, again, we can see now exactly why that can be true because of what we see here in Romans 5. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Uh, you know, we, we say this to you all the time, and just sometimes I get concerned. It can, be just so, it can be so familiar to us. I just think sometimes we just lose sense of how wonderful and great this is. Have you ever had a really bad dream, nightmare, and you woke up, and for a few moments after you woke up, it, it felt like the nightmare was actually true for you? 
and you kind of woke up kind of downcast and depressed, and then all of a sudden it occurred to you, that was just a dream. <laughs> and now you're kind of elated because this thing you were dreaming about is not true. And that should be our reaction every time we think of the wrath of God that we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God, but wait a minute, the gospel is true. Wait a minute, Jesus died on the cross and has risen from the dead. <laughs> he eliminated the wrath of God for me. I don't have to face the wrath of God. Oh my goodness, I mean, is there anything better than that? That's the gospel, that's the good news. I mean, we have hard lives, we have disappointments, we have challenges, but whatever difficulty you're facing now, remember, you're not going to hell, Christian. You're not going to face the wrath of God. You're accepted. G. Campbell Morgan was a very famous British preacher in the early 1900s, and um, he, like most people in ministry, had to go through kind of an ordination procedure, and um, he was preaching a trial sermon before a, a number of people who were evaluating him and judging him as to whether he would be accepted into the ministry, and so he preaches this sermon before like 75 people. Two weeks go by, and um, he finds the results, and the results say, sorry, not good enough, you're not approved. And so Morgan is just devastated by this, <clears throat> and he sends a, a wire telegram to his father with just one word, rejected. And his father responds almost immediately with these words, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Friends, as you look forward to the big day, if you are looking to Jesus and trusting in him, even though you're an imperfect Christian and you struggle to do the right thing, if Jesus is your hope, that statement is true of you. Accepted in heaven on that great and awesome day of the Lord. Praise God. Let's pray.